G'day and welcome to the last of our best of 2020 episodes of Occupied. This episode is titled The Importance of Language in Disability. This uh, was an episode that, like the other ones, uh, kind of challenged me, uh, made me think think outside of the box of what I currently thought that I knew uh, and was a super, super uh, a valuable uh, resource, I believe. So join Jackie and Clea uh, and me uh, and hopefully you guys get as much out of it as I have. Kick it off. G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. Uh, my first introduction to to OT um, was really after my my father had had a, a small stroke. Um, you know, I think when we think about stroke and stroke care, you know, we are always introduced to doctors, nurses, um, neurologists, whatever. Um, but it was the first time I'd even heard the name. You know, this was. Oh gosh, I won't even say how many years ago now, but uh, <laughs> a um, Just yeah, a couple of years ago, you know, um, and you know, decided to look into it further as part of a health professions class in, in high school, and um, learned that there was a program at a university that was only an hour away from where I lived, and decided to pursue it. Um, you know, that's Simple that's that. really it. Yeah. And yeah. where did you, what was your sort of main area of practice once you'd finished? Where did you go? Um, I, I started in acute care. Um, I, well, in the beginning of OT school, I, I thought I was going to be a pediatric therapist. You know, I That's feel like OT. everybody, every yeah, I was say everybody, <laughs> yeah, everybody comes into school like, I'm going to be a pediatric therapist. I'm going to work you with know? kids. And, yeah. Yes. And I had my first level two at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and was like, uh, no, <laughs> this is not my cup of tea. Not that, you know, I found it difficult to work with children, but just the fat, like negotiating family dynamics, plus, you know, a, a child that is facing challenges in a system that doesn't really support family needs and all those other things. I was just like, maybe I am more equipped to deal with adult concerns and, you know, something on the, on the neurologic end. And so, um, Northeast Georgia hospital, which is the largest health system outside of Atlanta in Georgia, they have a, um, fairly large stroke rehab there at the hospital. And so I um, really split my time between acute care and inpatient rehab um, to work with people that had strokes. Um, Went so full circle. Did that for. Yeah, yeah, back to it. Back to and it, what was the draw card to, to bring you into or back into academia? Um, really, my experiences in the Master's of Science portion of my OT program, I really – fell in love with the research process and, um, you know, really wanted to make sure I kept 
inquiry as a part of what I was doing in my everyday practice and just really kind of felt unsatisfied with um, what we were doing in acute care and like incorporating evidence and that sort of thing. And a mentor of mine suggested that, you know, if I really wanted to contribute to the profession in in that sort of way, like understanding scholarship and contributing to scholarship, that um, the PhD would be the way to go and to continue to work a little bit longer and, um, UNC actually was the very first school that she suggested I apply to. And so it was the only program I applied to and thankfully got in. Um, and the, the rest is history, really. Comedy. History at 37, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounds a little ridiculous. But... That's fine. I can yeah. accept that. I'm yeah. 35. I feel that. I feel that. <clears throat> so your PhD, was it around? Because I know and we'll get to this in a minute, like I know a lot of your uh, online presence is around diversity and that kind of thing. Was your PhD mm-hmm. in that or was it around acute care type stuff? Um, my PhD was um, actually on institutionalized adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, but I got to that out of a just like a clinical experience I was having in North Carolina. I was um, contracting with or through a company that worked with the state to do occupational therapy evaluations in developmental centers and was just finding it really difficult to do the kind of work that we are charged to do as occupational therapists. Like really people were trying to tell me what to do. You know, it's like do the evals, don't worry about what clients need, like don't write goals, like only focus on this one thing over here, like adaptive equipment, but then not follow up with staff about use of the equipment and just, all of these things that didn't make sense. And I made some friends and probably some enemies along the way. (laughs) And, you know, um, went to my advisor, Nancy Bagatelle. And I was just like the, the, the entire experience just really changed something in my spirit. And I told her, I was like, I can't let this go. I need to figure out how to do a dissertation around these sorts of issues. Um, And so um, decided to do an institutional ethnography, which really allowed me to see like the ways that um, staff and administrators and practitioners and just everybody that was involved in developmental centers, how they sort of take up and interpret health policy and how they sort of manifest in very prohibitive ways um, and really go against sort of the missions of these centers to provide a certain level of care and habilitation and respite and transition back into communities because these people have, most of the residents have been there their, their entire lives. And if they haven't been there their, their entire lives, they're admitted um, to stay there until they, they pass on. Um, and there's very little room for um, engagement in, in occupations of their choice um, and just, gosh, a myriad of other issues I could I could rattle off. Mm. We'll put a pin in that <clears> because <throat> we'll go to Jacqueline now and we'll merge those two stories together. So, yeah. Jacqueline, why did you choose OT? Um, I think it really began with my encounters with the disability community from a young age. Um, People with disabilities have always been embedded in my social circles. My mom was a special educator, and so she uh, really ensured that inclusivity was a part of my life. And um, 
in undergraduate, I was involved with a number of programs. One was for supporting um, transition-aged young adults with disabilities as they enter adulthood and uh, prepare for whatever aspirations they have. Um, and then I also was involved with Best Buddies, which is a program that uh, promotes friendship between people with and without disabilities. And um, I guess I'll talk about V3 Coffee uh, later on. But really, um, I think it was a gradual exposure to the reality of how people with disabilities are treated and viewed in society. Um, and it's something that I felt that I had to take action on. And I, I, I just noticed others' discomfort around my friends and colleagues and clients with disabilities. And that's something that I couldn't accept. Um, and it was actually my mom that uh, suggested OT as a potential pathway for me. Um, so here I am. <laughs> I think uh, we may have had very similar upbringings. My mom is also a special education teacher, uh, as is my <coughs> wife. Just, you know, yeah. fitting with the, you know, you marry someone who takes after your mom, theory. But yeah. <laughs> so I'm very well versed in the world of special education as well. Yeah. However, she discouraged me from entering that profession due As to did mine. systems and structures <laughs> that are dominating the school system. <laughs> yeah. It sounds very similar to over here then. So what was it? So you said that you you noticed, uh, I can't remember if you said your friends or other people like interacting with people with disability differently and not treating them as well. What sorts of, like what was happening? Was it like, overt stuff or was it just things that most people would probably not even sort of realize that they're doing? Yeah, I think a lot of it stems from an unconscious bias. Um, but I would receive comments. I was a direct support professional throughout undergrad. I think I mentioned that, but um, such as, oh, you're such a kind person for supporting this individual or um oh, that, that must be so difficult for them to, you know, have a disability. And just um, kind of these comments that are founded in probably good intentions, but just are really demeaning um, and I think diminishing of, a, of personhood. Um, and I've just realized that benevolent ableism is so pervasive. Like the idea that you must that inclusion is driven by kind or good intentions rather than a human right. Mm. Um, and I, I mean, Western culture, I think is, it can be a really harmful um, influence in the discourses around disability because it idealizes independence and self-reliance uh, and these are not things that many people with disabilities get to experience. And so it really devalues them um, and casts them really on the outskirts of, of our society and um, creates diminished opportunities for them to participate. So I think the uh, one of my, I guess, pet passion peeves is the... Uh, a very Western idea of independence is the goal, no matter what. And that's one of the things that shits me when most OTs are like, oh, we help people get back to independence. I'm like, what if they don't want to? Like, what if 
Exactly. Yeah. Like, I, I, and if you're going to look at independence as the dictionary definition, I challenge you to find anyone who's completely independent. Everyone's exactly. dependent on someone or something. Right. Even if it's like, you know, people who aren't in a relationship often want to be in a relationship. People aren't growing their own food. They're not slaughtering their own animals. They're not, you know, walking to work in a lot of cases. Like they're reliant on other people, on their community, on their society, on, yeah. I, I am very much against the independence myth. Mm-hmm. But that might be a tale for another story. Well, we'll get into it, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Soon. We'll pace ourselves. um yeah so how so oh let's get into b3 so you've so one of the reasons that we connected was after i think i put an episode out about the occupation of coffee making coffee uh and we connected over that because you are very passionate about coffee just to (laughs) scroll through your instagram feed can show that there's often photos of coffee and grinding and yeah, all sorts of coffee paraphernalia, etc. cetera. Uh, and then I found that you were involved with a, is it a not-for-profit or a, a business, a company called B3 Coffee? Yes. Okay. Well, what's B3? What Please explain. Yeah. That's still my favorite episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so the idea for B3 Coffee emerged out of my experience working as a barista for all my undergraduate years. Um, and what I was really struck by was just uh, how it it could be a, a conduit for inclusion, like how it really brought people together and allowed for these really natural encounters between varying populations. Um, and at, at the time, I was also involved with those programs I mentioned um, in support of the disability community and I kind of drew the connection like well I could I could use this um, I see its potential to really um, create this platform for a natural exposure um, for the disability community and then um, encourage those those positive interactions between different groups so that's what I did. I, I really just started with uh, a fold-out table and a French press and a pour-over and got together some of my friends with and without disabilities, and we um, we did a pop-up coffee stand. I, I really had no idea where it was headed, and um, it's, it's really am- amazing the transformations that can occur just through the opportunity to interact with someone who's different than you. Um, and, and when that person is in a position of dignity and um, holding a space of contribution in their community, it can really, I think, dismantle some of those preconceived notions around people with disabilities and uh, what they're capable of and um, how they contribute. So, yeah, um, now B3 Coffee is a nonprofit. <coughs> And we pop up all over the community at nonprofits and uh, farmers markets, libraries, really anywhere that'll take us events. Um, and it's it's been really a privilege to be a part of. So that's awesome. That's so good. And just because I know most people can't, well, not most people, no one can see you. 
just to prove how much she loves coffee, I'm fairly sure she has a coffee cup on a necklace hanging around her neck. Yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> if there's any question about her <laughs> passion for coffee. Yes. <laughs> Claire, yeah. is there, is this, is, is, I guess, organizations, not-for-profits, businesses, etc., like B3, the fix? Is that how we're going to fix this uh, what i'm gonna i'm gonna say because that's what i know a western society Mm -hmm. issue um i don't know if fix is the word but they definitely serve as examples of how we um as a society need to create space for true inclusion um if if we if we want a world where we are truly like embracing diversity, right? That we have equity and access um, in in all facets of industry and that people can fully participate in them and and not just create the space, but they're at the table, right? That they're really, mm. their voices are not just heard, but they're included requires that the, our physical and social spaces are already built with them, included in the decisions from, from jump. And I'm trying to remember, I just had this conversation with somebody recently about how, you know, we do so much diversity, equity, and inclusion work, but when these groups are formed, they don't, they don't represent the very thing that they talk about. And so one of the things that, and hearing Jacqueline talk, like, I feel like a a proud mama, right? She's only (laughs) been (laughs) in our program for a year, but, you know, just her, her, her work caught my attention, not just as an educator and a researcher and as an OT, but just as a, a, a human who wants to make sure that, that I, I am doing right by everybody in my, in my community. And so um, I think once we fundamentally change the attitudes of people that, that like diversity, equity, and inclusion doesn't start, you know, distally that it's something we have to think about proximally you know when we think about built physical and social environments then Mm. we'll truly see change you know but as Jacqueline mentioned with culture you know it it has us before we have it and you know Mm -hmm. I think about like religion and and other things that are sort of embedded in how it is that we treat people with disabilities that is that is an institution and that is something that is going to be um the, the hurdle of humanity, <laughs> really, to, to, to get over. Um, so, so it sounds um, like when you're talking about, um, like, making sure that environments, whether it built, natural, cultural, et cetera, are tailored to everyone, are you sort of looking at things like universal design? Um, yeah, you yeah. know, as one example, um, and it, oh gosh, when you think about universal design, I also think about like how accessible is it? You know, I can remember in OT school, there is a community, I think it was in Fayetteville, Georgia, that we went to. Beautiful homes, everything was universally designed, but they started at 500000 US dollars. Like what, what person with, uh, <laughs> let alone, if you have a disability or not, like who can afford that? Like what working class person you know, can afford that? What person that is aging who needs this sort of setup to continue to live in their communities can afford that? You know, what family that is, you know, busting their asses, working multiple jobs, needing waivers and all these other things that need it for their children, who can afford that? Mm. It's like, come on, 
and I don't even know what happened to the community. I'm assuming they, they did sell out, but it's like, make it accessible. But part of being accessible is also being affordable. Just using universal design as an example. Yeah. yeah. I think, yeah. <laughs> I think when I, when I think, I know a lot of people, when they look at universal design, they're just looking at sort of construction and building like the built environment, that kind of thing. When I think of it, I, mm-hmm. I kind of, I don't know, maybe it's just me. I think of it a little bit broader, similar to that in that there are a lot of factors, uh, whether it's socioeconomic in that example or cultural factors, uh, a myriad of other factors that have got nothing to do with the building uh, that right. can stop a person or prevent a person from accessing uh, either a service or housing or a particular occupation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. Some of those, you know, some of those may be medical conditions, that kind of thing. There are going to be some that are more difficult to overcome than others, but for the majority of them, and I like I, I haven't found many where if you can find a way to, I guess, avoid or not avoid, but negate that issue for one particular person, if that mm-hmm. way is more than likely going to work for everyone. Mm-hmm. So obviously in the cost instance, if you can find a way to make that kind of housing $200,000, whether that's possible or not, People with lots of money can still afford that. People with not as much money, uh, that's going to be more accessible to them as well. So it's universally, I guess that's the concept. Mm -hmm. It's going to be easily accessible to more people. To more people, yeah. So is that, and this is something I'm not sure about, and you guys would probably have a better idea than me. Is this a very, is this a predominantly Western issue? deep in thought i think on the on this on this on the surface it might be mm-hmm. um when you think about you know we sort of take up the concepts of you know individuality and independence and things where mm-hmm. you know you're you're concerned about units versus you know communities as a whole mm-hmm. whereas in you know more um eastern societies or it's societies in the global south right you're already sort of born into this idea that you know everybody takes care of each other Mm. right um so it in that in that sense it may be a very western um issue um but i i think you know moments like right now you know with with um the pandemic where i think people are having to confront more um the idea that we 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 are not independent we are interdependent our lives transact in more ways than we um can recognize which requires us to um think about others beyond ourselves and not just like people but you know the the earth (laughs) and 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 all that inhabited so um yeah you know and, and and because i am not i didn't grow up in, in the global South or non-Western context, you know, I don't, I, I can't, you know, speak to that a hundred percent, whether or not they face the same sort of issues. But I think fundamentally um, just the way our societies are, are constructed, it, it, it probably makes sense that it's more of a, a Western hmm. problem. Cause I guess a, a lot of the sort of exam, like obviously, again, I grew up in a Western culture. I'm very, 
uh, much a part of that aspect of society. Um, but through my studies, through my profession, like I hear lots of examples about other cultures and how they might view things slightly differently, etc. Um, even looking at theories like social constructionism, a lot of the examples around that are using different cultures to highlight the fact that, you know, the world is socially constructed in that example. And I think I, the, the theory, rough theory, that I sort of came to in my head is that there's a lot of other cultures that aspects of, so Eastern culture, for example, aspects of their culture is very much away from, say, our view of independence as king, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, the family, in a lot of those instances, very much looks after the family. You know, it's almost expected that the kids will look after the grandparents when the grandparents get old. There's no like putting grandparents in a home kind of thing. Um, but a lot of, I guess with glow, with globalization, a lot of the issues that I've heard or examples that I've heard of, Oh yeah, but you know, there's these similarities. I'm like, but that's a, a Westernized idea that's sort of, I guess, seeped into your country. So like Japan, for example, there's two almost completely different cultures. There. There's a very Westernized, um side of it and then there's the traditional japanese culture and they are exponentially different in how they view <laughs> disability work family like even just life priorities are completely different and to me i'm like well you've obviously had this very traditional culture and then these western ideas through globalization etc have sort of come into that particular country and I always feel like we've broken the world <laughs> with our ideas. I'm like, we're just, we're a virus, ironically. Yeah. I think we need to be careful um, in terms of a service or um, institutionally based approach to promoting diversity inclu and inclusion, because mm -hmm. in some ways, I feel like it can perpetuate systems of oppression and dependency. Um, and that's why I'm so passionate about OTs moving into communities and people's real physical and social environments to create that change. Um, because so I think from the coalface, yeah, pe people with disabilities are often viewed as on the receiving end of services and, you know, we're helping them. That's another one of my pet peeves is OTs being viewed as like the helpers, um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think in many ways that discourse around disability is perpetuated by um, our by our service system like and how they're always the ones in, in the position of accessing rather than being the agents of empowerment. So in, in your experience of like three studies and 3B3, do you feel like there's enough wiggle room for therapists to work uh, in a more inclusive way within the systems that already exist or do we have to do? Because I know you were saying like, you know, not just a systemic thing. Um, you got to work sort of from the coalface, but is there enough wiggle room for us to do that currently or do we have to try and change from above and from the ground where we are? Hmm. Not, I think I'm so. I'm not saying there's an answer. Yeah, I yeah. I definitely, first of all, am by no means an expert. Um, 
but I always come back to just this mindset of, of what is it a part of? Um, I think that that is always a question I'm coming back to. And I think it really promotes this kind of systems level understanding of a person's situation. So um, that's something that has helped guide me in providing truly uplifting support. And then also um, amplifying the voices of people with disabilities is something that is so critical. Um, I also always am guided by the phrase, nothing about us without us. If people with disabilities are not at the forefront of your initiative that is intended to impact them, then it's a disservice to them. Um, so that's, that's something that I think all practitioners should have in mind in any kind of setting is that, um, I mean, people with disabilities have the most important voice in all matters pertaining to them. Uh, it's really a simple concept, but I think one that is not enacted in the way that it should be. <laughs> That's one of the things I always like, and not even just with OTs, but there's a lot of health professionals that learn about and apparently use uh, like client-centered practice until it comes to certain demographics that they just automatically kind of forget. Oh yeah, by the way, this is the person that should be at the center of this practice, not me. I right. don't know why. <laughs> that's one. Mental health is a big one for me. I mean, that's my clinical experience, and that's always been an area where I've seen it, where all of a sudden clinicians are, are the experts according to the system, and yeah. people come to them to get fixed. And that's the that's the basic Western medical model of mental health care. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't work. It doesn't I prefer work. To put <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm always learning from and alongside people with disabilities. Like it's I'm constantly being challenged in my assumptions. Um and I think that's so important to take that position of being in the background in some ways and really leveraging that person to um be the active participant in what they want in their life, like, you know. And that's, I think that's one of the real, you just touched on it then, like the fact that you're always learning as well. That was one of the things that I sort of, a, a position I put myself in when I was not quite a new grad, but a few years out was I sort of had this idea that like, if I'm not learning, then I'm doing something wrong. Like I know that, mm -hmm. you know, according to the system, like they're coming to see me and I'm supposed to do this and then this is how it all plays out, etc. But for me, learning has always been such a big part of everything um, that that was almost my way of ensuring that, one, the power balance was like definitely in their favor, if not equal, uh, but also that they were in control of where we were going with like the, the intervention that we were doing because essentially they were teaching me, whether it was like I've had clients that, taught me sign language so that I could communicate with them better. I've had clients that have introduced me to their whole family. I've gone around for family lunch and like learnt about their family history and that sort of stuff. And I was just, I guess I wasn't a therapist. I was just there to learn. Like I, I just have this thing that I feel like there's far too many therapists that go through university, get their degree, go, yep, sweet. 
this is a piece of paper says I'm the expert. Where do I start billing people? And mm-hmm. I feel like there's too many people that stop learning as soon as they finish, as soon as they graduate. And that's and I, I know that majority of courses around the world, including the ones that uh, we work at or attend, would have probably say very similar things that OT is a profession of lifelong learning. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like, uh, I feel like a lot of, uh, it's almost like either not given the right context, that particular saying isn't given the right context. It's more people. I think a lot of people think that, oh yeah, that's because we've got to do CPD points every year. I'm like, no, that's <laughs> not what it is. Like, <laughs> this is like, you are, immersing yourself you are becoming a part of the environment for the people that you work with and yeah unless... i've certainly learned more from people and their lived experiences than any textbook could offer me <laughs> yeah textbooks are great they serve a purpose but for a lot of the things especially when you're working with a specific person or a specific group they're gonna it doesn't matter what you're there to do you could be the gardener they're going to be the expert in their situation and what they want or what they want to do with their lives or where they want to go with their lives or, you know, do they want to learn to be a barista or do they want to drive a tractor in a field? Whatever it is, they're going to be the expert. We're just meant to be there to support them, uh, I guess, overcome some of the barriers that have been stopping them getting where they want to go as opposed yeah. to right. just being really prescriptive. I got a real thing against OTs being prescriptive. Oh gosh. <laughs> I I have story upon story upon story about that. And you know, both of you really touched on something that I think one is a, a probably talking about this in OT classrooms is where it needs to start, but but the notion of who is the expert, right? And part of client-centered or patient-centered care requires that the therapist relinquish the power and the relationship to the person that they are, um, that they're working with. And I think we um, perpetuate the idea that we, that we really practice client-centeredness because we do an occupational profile or because we, you know, have interviewed the the parents of children or whatever it is, but whose whose voice is really guiding the therapeutic planning process, right? And then who um, who's who's setting the intervention plan? Um, one of my my biggest gripes in working in developmental centers is when we had these person center plan meetings. The person was never there, never, never. You know, and the first time I suggested it, like the looks, I can't even describe the looks that I got in the room. And I'm like, oh, we're we're talking about so-and-so, but where is he? I exactly (laughs) the same. We had exactly the job that I was in before, just before I went into academia, the same thing, case conferences without the person who, like you'd have 15 people in a room talking about a person and they're not there. And then- our particular team was, well, not necessarily forward thinking, but just like not as backwards as the rest of them. Um, 
suggested like why don't we bring the person so that they can engage in the conversation as well about you know everything that all of these people seem to want to do to them and same thing the looks and oh no we can't do maybe we can have a meeting before and then bring them in at the end i'm like that this is dumb yeah <laughs> this goes, and it's not even just OT. Like I know that the like nurses and social workers and psychs, like they all get taught about client-centered practice. This isn't an OT yeah. thing, right? It should be a health professional thing, right? Right. Yeah. So I actually have an example of relinquishing the power, <laughs> as you were talking Fire about. Away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So with B3 Coffee, at first, I really intended for it to be all about coffee, like really emphasizing specialty, carefully crafted coffee, so that we could further emphasize the strengths and skills that our baristas could demonstrate, right? Um, And for it to be a way for them to build vocational skills. But what I realized that what what they wanted out of this platform was a space for social connection um, and community building. And that's something that I really had, you know, I had to take a step back and, you know, kind of uh, rework what I was doing because it wasn't truly reflecting what their interests were um, and what they wanted it to be. so for that reason, like they are now involved in all aspects of leading and operating B3 because I, the last thing I want is for me to be making decisions on how they want to be represented um, and how they want to benefit from this space, you know? So, so just, just for example, like how, many, how many people are involved in B3 like all up? Yeah, so... It's, it's really grown a lot, actually, since COVID um, because we've moved everything online. So that's actually made it more accessible to people in different geographical areas. Um, but I'd say we have 30-plus uh, team members and baristas. So. And so when you're saying, uh, like, they want to take it in a different direction, like, that's everyone sort of equal, say, big meeting kind of thing? That's what they've come up with? Everyone's come up with? Um, it's, it just seemed to be headed in that way. Like, <laughs> for example, um, at, at some of our meetings, we'll be going over training materials. And, and yes, they, they enjoy that aspect of it. But I can also so clearly see that what this is all about is that belonging and connection that they want to experience. Um, Yes, they will gain from uh, the skills, and you know some of them don't even like coffee, but they just enjoy being oh there. Oh my god, who are they? <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, but I think what what we're all truly after in life is is acceptance um, and dignity and contribution, and um, that's just kind of what I picked up on from them. And yes, we'll continue. Um, to be that platform for vocational skill building, but I think it's it's so much more than that. It's almost like a secondary benefit. Yeah, exactly. So what? So you just kind of touched on something then uh, when you're talking about it being about sort of connection acceptance. So if independent, well, I think we've already well established that independence isn't a very good yardstick <laughs> for any of this stuff. 
what do you think might or what do you think might be a better measure for OTs to kind of look at uh, to be more inclusive? Like me personally, I'm wondering whether it might be engagement or connection or something to that effect where yes. we can kind of, I guess, structure what we do. And that still fits with, you know, our existing models and how we use them. We might just have to apply them a little bit differently. Um, or do we need to scrap all that and start from start the whole profession over? <laughs> I think OTs play a really critical role in building natural networks of support. You know, the reality is that many people with disabilities are only supported by people who are paid to support them. Um, and that is, you know, a really sad <laughs> existence. Um, and I think what B3 is for people is this opportunity for them to feel seen and heard and supported by people who are there out of genuine interest in them. And it's, it's really a mutually beneficial thing. Um, so yeah, I think uh, just creating access and facilitating um, participation in various community endeavors and spaces that that's really um what we can do so that's it that's interesting because i remember as you were saying that i remember uh, a guy i used to work with who used to call me his best friend and that was because i used to come and visit him three times a week even though like yeah. i was his case manager uh within the mental health system uh and don't get me like got along well with him but it was a very professional relationship but to me i was like that's it's kind of depressing. That's kind of sad that just because I was the only person that was really coming to visit him very often and we would have conversations and I'd hang out for an hour and help him do things, whatever he needed to do that day, that I was his best friend. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of the the issues we had or I had as a, a clinician within, like I live in a fairly small city it's probably 160,000 people um what we would call a regional city mm -hmm. um there wasn't that many opportunities for like he was a an older guy um wasn't that many opportunities to try and i guess build those social networks those social connections which is what he really wanted and what he really needed he was reaching out for it with anyone who would who would, you know, come and see him kind of thing. He would ask if there was other clinicians that would go and visit him on the weekends when I wasn't working and I'd see him the next week and he'd ask about them, how they are and, you know, what have they mm. been up to since they came to visit him? And he was just like, it was crying out for that social interaction, but we just didn't have, there was nothing really, there was no services, no nothing around, which then I guess is that the issue or is that would that be or like putting those services in place is that just perpetuating the issue because like you said the majority of people uh with a disability the only contact they have is people within services and that was something we found in mental health is a lot of the people that did make friends out to, outside of you know services it was with other people within the mental health system because they were going to support groups or, you know, community groups that were for 
set up for and paid for by the government for people with a mental illness kind of thing, there wasn't that many opportunities unless they were interested in going and getting work somewhere. And even then, they'd go through a special sort of job find service that was for people with a disability, which, yes, that serves a purpose. But again, a lot of those people would end up in the same jobs with other people with a disability. So it's almost systemically we're kind of like rounding all these people up into little things because we don't know what else to do. Yeah. It's like inclusive segregation, right? Yeah. And I, like, I, I understand that it, it probably wasn't designed with that in mind and I'm sure it was all, you know, at the time it was coming from a good place and this is, you know, we're going to be helping these people and that sort of thing. But the end result is it, it's not inclusive it's not I, I don't want to use the word normal but it's not how most of those people i would i would reckon would want to actually be spending their lives would be surrounded by you know people that have essentially been hoarded into the same area as them like sheep almost mm-hmm. right yeah i think too often we fall into the trap of of like you say, like it, it might be well intended, but wanting to create something that's special over here hmm. um, for folks who who have um, unique needs and things like that, you know. And the unintended consequence is that you just you've you've taken a, a population of folks and and segregated them from the very thing that you intended for them to be a part of. And so, I think one of the things that we have to unlearn is creating, not creating like special days and events, but just making sure. So like we were saying before that folks are included from the outset um, and, and have them under your planning boards and, and those sorts of things. Um, But, you know, speaking to like, what is it that T's can do in terms of making sure that we are attending to the um, folks' natural context and social connections. You know, I think often we think about sort of advocating for these things as something that is separate from our practice, but it should be a part of our practice. It's something we need to think about um, on our initial meetings with with people in the community. Um, and you know, I don't I don't know that it necessarily requires that we like I said, like create these extra special things. Like we shouldn't make these exceptions, you know. Um, it, it it's something that I I think about often and, and think about in my own practice, particularly because you know most of the um, individuals that I work with don't use conventional means of communication intellectual and the physical disability you know they don't have the the conventional communication that folks are accustomed to for folks to be able to um express what they need and so they always have like a, well for people with profound severe profound intellectual disability we're gonna have this special thing over here mm. you know and then it becomes let's have this you know it, I'll, I'll take the state state fair for example because i think this was the most glaring example when I, I I realize this was a problem, you know. It's it's only folks who 
you know, have severe and profound ID at the state fair during a very specific time. But everybody who was there, I just watched how they just had this gaze on people that were there. And they're like, oh, isn't that nice that they can do that? And, you know, oh, we didn't know people like this live in our community. And it's like, well, of course you don't, because we <laughs> we take a very special moment in time and place them there instead of making sure that the environment is set up for them to participate at any time. And even when they're there, could they really participate in anything? Hmm. You know, nothing is adapted. You know, we get to see animals and eat, but do we really get to enjoy it and take part and be social with other folks from the community who can come and experience it in, in its fullness? And yeah, and I just I just want OTs to sort of be cognizant of, you know, these sorts of things at the at the very initial meeting with their with their clients and not that we're gonna go in and advocate for these extra special things that should happen you know, yes. outside <laughs> of the natural context instead of making it a part of the natural context. It's, yeah, yeah, that is not true integration. If anything, that's othering and sensationalizing of disability. Um, it does the opposite of normalizing uh, natural variation, you know, in humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it also touches on the idea of treating people with disabilities as objects of inspiration uh, which is extremely <laughs> harmful, um, and and who is gaining the gratification from that? It's it's able-bodied people because because you think, oh, I'm I'm so glad I'm not that person, um, and you know that's that's really su- sweet that they're doing that, and look at how much they've overcome, um, and it's really just to um, take pride in our own abilities rather than mm. truly, you know, empower people with this so i was gonna bring that up before because one of the things that i've i've heard often is oh you know they're so brave i'm like oh you you talk to someone who is they're like no i'm just like like i'm going outside to get a cup of coffee that's not fucking brave that's i wanted a coffee like that's very regular shit yeah (laughs) brave is like a firefighter running into a burning building or something like that like this is just me living my life this isn't brave this is just living I think that yeah. the other, touches on that sensationalization of, of disability. It's like, that's not often their perspective. And if it is, maybe they need a reality check. Right. Yeah. And it, <laughs> and it underscores just like the lack of self-awareness and all of that too. When people say things like that, not understanding that able-bodied people are the ones who put these restrictions in place and perpetuate the systems that constantly keep people with disabilities from being able to participate and and um, feel valued and be able to contribute in ways that we think are important. Um, I had that conversation. Sometimes you want to hold up a mirror and be like, look. <laughs> I had that conversation with someone the other day about, you know, it's not someone's physical capacity that causes them to be disabled. It's the commu- it's the environment. People aren't disabled by anything that they've done. People are disabled by the community's lack of ability to accommodate what they their capacities and their needs. So mm-hmm. it's, in reality, it's got nothing to do with them. In everything to do with us, we are the yes. issue. Able-bodied people designing the world and running the world like it is is the issue. 
Sorry, I think I cut you off before, Jackie. Were you going to say something? <laughs> I got excited. I got on my passionate soapbox and got excited. <laughs> While she's thinking, I, I can say that I'm already thinking about um, a special topics like doctoral seminar on sort of like critical perspectives and disability that I plan to teach, um, I think, in year three. But uh, just this conversation alone is just giving me so many other ideas that I'm jotting down. So I saw you taking notes. I saw you taking notes. Yeah. Before. So I'm taking notes or I'm getting a scorecard. I'm not quite sure. What yeah. that Another thing I'm thinking about is just how many assumptions we cast on what a person's participation should look like. You know, I'm particularly interested in, supporting um, young adults with disabilities as they figure out um, what they want to pursue in their lives. And so often I see, oh, well, they, they have an intellectual disability, so they'll do well in a, in a service industry job with repetitive tasks. Or, <laughs> you know, um, oh, this, this person, um, they should get involved with Special Olympics because, you know, that's... <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know there's that's so problematic in in determining the direct we determine the direction of people's futures by making these assumptions and judgments about what they should do with their lives like that's extremely oppressive yeah (laughs) what if what if someone told an able-bodied person oh no like you need to take this route in your career and like you know that's it's just the route you're headed toward like i don't know see i I wonder whether that's partially very small partially now that i'm thinking about it but partially like a i guess a hangover of uh like from history of years past where back in the you know 200 years ago 300 years ago depending on what country you're in obviously there's 300 years ago there was no western society in australia it was all aboriginal people but in America, obviously, you guys were you were there in 300 years ago. But back then, you quite often, if you were a farmer, your farmer, your father was a farmer, you became a farmer, you carried on with whatever the family business was to the point where in England and where we come, where Austra- westernized Australia uh, originated from, our surnames are often professions. <laughs> People were named after their family business. So I wonder if that somewhat is a hangover and as things have changed, obviously our view of disability and those that aren't, uh, you know, able-bodied or able-minded is kind of lagging behind where everyone else feels like society is up to kind of thing. Yeah, it's interesting how disability is often overlooked as a segment of diversity. You know, it's it's really sidelined in those conversations. And whereas we have made a lot of strides toward um, viewing people with disabilities in another way, it's so far behind um, so many of the other civil rights movements, really. It's interesting because that's, I mean, that's something I've, on the topic of civil rights, a lot of uh, African-American content is stuff that you put out, Kalia. Mm-hmm. Is there similarities between, 
and I don't know much about American history with regards to that, but is there similarities even theoretically between that struggle and like what disability is going through at the moment or should be going towards? Are there similarities between those two? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think you can you can definitely draw parallels, right? Because people are um, systematically um, oppressed based by a protected um, demographic. So, you know, ra- racialized um, um, oppression, you know, um, and then you have, again, you know, disabilities rights. But I think um, the, the difference is, though, is the is, is the ableism. Mm. Right. Um, so, um, although, you know, American history is different in that, you know, our racialized systems of oppression is something that is still, um, pervasive. Um, but you know, black people in particular are able to vote and do other things, but still socially have to negotiate the way we live and, and move about the world differently, um, people with disabilities haven't been given the same um, voice, I think, primarily be because there's a layer of ableism on top of that, too, um, and how we think about the ways that they can contribute to society um, is, is just different, but, but the fight is the same, right? They don't um, it's a community that, um, honestly, is, a, is, is the largest sociopolitical disadvantaged group in the country, um, uh, but still hasn't been able to leverage its power in ways I think um, racialized groups have in some some way in America. I mean, that that is a whole separate conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but... Um, yeah, I think the 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 issue here is is ableism, but also capitalism. Thinking about how how are the ways that people can contribute to the economic productivity of the country. Um, you know, people with disabilities are often placed in shelter workshops and things like that. When we think about how they were institutionalized from a historical perspective, and those systems still exist, but have been repackaged in very, in various ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know you, like Jacqueline mentioned, like they, we, we have these programs that just want to stick people in these positions where they have these repetitive tasks all the time um, without really thinking about, you know, what is the, the, the range of opportunity that's available to them to really, um, I was about to say demonstrate capacity, but that sounds like I have to judge if you can do this or not before I actually value what it is you can contribute. <laughs> you know, I had to check myself even in that thinking, but, but I, but honestly, I feel like that's what people do. Um, you know, it's like, Oh, we're going to put them in the community over here in this, you know, administrative thing when literally they're stapling and unstapling papers all day. Um, or um, Harris Teeter, which is a great organization that, you know, they do hire a lot of people with disabilities, but they're only bagging groceries. You know, why am I not seeing people with disabilities as managers or, you Mm -hmm. know, in the marketing, first of all, it's like you have a program, but everything that you see sort of the national branding of the organization, there's not a single person with a disability. Um, So just, yeah. Yeah. So I, I say all that to say, yeah, you can draw, you can draw parallels, but I think the, one of the, or a couple of the largest hurdles that people with disabilities face in particular is confronting ableism and, and capitalism on that. Cause it's, 
people are going to look at them as how how are you going to contribute to the economic fabric of this country? That's what I, said. I was actually having a similar conversation with I can't even remember who that was not long ago, a couple of days ago, um, about uh, specifically about disability and and work. In that one of the issues, and again, it's potentially a very westernized idea as well, or a capitalism idea anyway, of uh, the focus of all employment being on productivity as opposed to something else like, you know, worker enjoyment or something like that, where mm-hmm. the, the the focus, like if you take any, any, you pick any job at all and change the focus away from productivity and onto something, you know, different, anything really, the potential there to get more people with a disability into those roles goes through the roof. Mm-hmm. A lot of people purely and even without any kind of assessment to say like you're c- capable of doing this much kind of thing, just the fact, just the label, I think often of having a disability automatically gives people this misguided image of someone who's not going to be able to keep up with whatever the producti- productivity demands are or mm-hmm. uh, not going to be able to cope with the workload or the stress or whatever it is, whatever the particular job is. But I think often it's before it even gets to that stage of actually assessing someone. Cause I mean, I know there are a lot of employers that'll assess everyone because certain jobs, you know, might require a certain physical capacity, able-bodied or not. You'd have to pass this or you can't do the job kind of thing. Like the army, for example, you have to be able to do these things to be able to do the job. That's fair enough. Um, but I think, unfortunately, I've heard of a lot, and I think this, again, is going to fall back into that systemic issue of a lot of people with a disability often would be almost pigeonholed before they even have any of a kind of assessment like that, which then in turn uh, is why they end up in those very specialized sort of employment programs, which then in turn, you know, puts them in a lower socioeconomic area and blah, blah, blah. And the the cycle continues kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of that issue sort of, I guess, lowest common denominator being general public's perception of disability capacity. Yeah. I think we have a long way to go toward acceptance of limitations. Like even if a person cannot meet the same productivity standards as the other employees, there is still value in their presence in that space, you know? Um, And there is dignity and worth in being. I think sometimes too much emphasis is placed on the doing. and different ways of being are equally valid. And I think that's something that our culture has really failed in many ways to embrace. And the, really the, the underlying driver of so many of our, so much of the stigma around disability, for sure. I think that's one of the big issues I see with OT as a profession. There's too much emphasis on the doing and not enough on the you know, being, becoming, belonging. Mm-hmm. which yeah. ironically is one of the reasons why I love B3. Cause... Okay, and I actually had never heard of Ann Wilcox. When I made really? 
I'm serious. <laughs> and then that I was like, my mind. when I read about that in the textbook, I was like, wow, I was meant to be an OT, I guess. <laughs> that is a sign. If ever there was one. That was serendipitous. As soon as I read yeah. it, I'm like, ah, oh, yes, she's been into the textbook. No. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, because originally we started off in partnership with Best Buddies, and we used to be called Best Buddies Brews in B, like, so B3. B3, yep. Right? And then when we decided to branch off on our own and become our own organization, everyone had been calling it B3 anyways. So I was like, okay, I need to figure out what this actually means. What's going to represent B3? And so I came up with the bean belonging becoming. I was like, whoa. <laughs> That's kind yeah. of freaky. Yeah, I know. It really is. So, yeah. the big question. If we're going to improve things, we've obviously... One of the big issues, like we just highlighted, is public's perception uh, and essentially acting, segregating people based on that perception before often they've even met them. And a lot of our, you know, systems that obviously are not necessarily built to oppress, but the outcome is that that's what they tend to do. Um, how do we, how can we as individual OTs make a difference? How can we even start? What's the smallest step? How can we change things? How can we improve things for people with a disability? It's a big question. <laughs> I like the big ones. Yeah. <laughs> Makes people think. I think, <laughs> you know, honestly, I feel like, I mean, like you said, it, you start small, you know, um, it's um, challenging the ways your organization documents or the inclusion of documenting people's natural context and, and the need for uh, more sort of interdisciplinary planning on making sure that that people are in a social environment and physical environment that supports them being able to thrive. You know, it's, um, you know, small things like me either challenging people's thinking on Twitter or Instagram, you know, or, or providing space for people with disabilities to, to do what it is that they need to do. You know, I put it out there and step back and let them have it. Um, it's, um, joining organizations that haven't traditionally thought about people with disabilities and bringing that perspective in and challenging them to, to, to also um, uh, be more equitable and, and, and inclusive in the way they run their organizations by including people with disabilities. And, you know, I think just those small acts like that create real change. I don't know. Oops. I don't know if it's, it's, sustainable change because you really you know changing changing minds is one thing changing hearts is another um but i i think sort of cumulative cumulatively um things like that create real change i agree um i think it's so important to be constantly um in a position of critical reflection and seeking the perspectives of people with disabilities because they're, they're the ones who um, can really offer us the next steps for how to, how to move forward um, in providing true uplifting support. 
Um, I think just constantly questioning our assumptions about what it means to bring value to society. Um, and recognizing that, you know, the real change makers are in the background. Um, we should, we should, if our if our self image is benefiting from the advocacy that we're doing, then we're doing something wrong. I like that. That's a good, I think that's little things like that. I think are, are really good measuring sticks for, therapists things that they can actually start that sort of reflection process because like like we said at the start like i think a lot of these issues people often i don't even think they realize that it's an issue until it's pointed out until they actually look at it and go oh wait i am actually perpetuating this or you know when this happened i did think this like am i part of the problem kind of thing and i've had a few of these conversations on the podcast now um, I guess kind of, I guess, bringing that to light to people so that, yeah, you know, I think step one is people need to realize that, you know, by ignoring the issue, it's not going to go away. And quite often their thoughts, the wording they use, how they interact with people, again, it might be coming from a good place. They might feel like they're doing the right thing. But unless it's a very a conscious thing that they're doing, a conscious sentence that they're saying, a conscious action that they're doing towards another person, it could be perpetuating the issue. Mm -hmm. To me, that's yeah. kind of step one is I, mean, I hate, I genuinely hate the whole like, oh, I'm bringing awareness to something because it doesn't feel like you're doing anything. But I do think that making people reflect on their own actions with regards to this issue is the first thing we need to do, or not just we, but everyone needs to do in order to, I guess, find their place within it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that awareness is going to come from creating spaces of true integration that are not contrived you know, allowing people to reconcile each other's differences. That's, that's so powerful just to be exposed to them because we're, we're uncomfortable and we don't understand what we lack exposure to. Cause I do think, like I was saying uh, at the start, I think a lot of therapists resign themselves to the fact that, Oh, this is the way the system works. I can't, you know, I have to do it this way because this is the way it's always been done. Um, but I kind of, I, and I've, on a lot of different issues, I've challenged therapists. Like one of your biggest jobs as a therapist working with people is to advocate for those people. And that's not necessarily just, you know, John needs a wheelchair. It's, you know, John needs a friendship group. John needs whatever John wants, really. But your job there is to go out of that sort of I think too many get stuck in that us and them thing like I'm a therapist this is what a therapist does they're the client this is how the client responds yeah it's a power dynamic and it's I, I think when you get sucked into the health system as it is designed at the moment it's really hard to one even think outside that box to start with. and I think it's 
a lot of the people that I've seen that are really good at this are people like in academia or students or people that are in private practice doing their own thing. They're not within that uh, very structured sort of, say, public uh, or big state type health systems. They're the people I think have the feel like they have more of the freedom to explore these issues and design, uh, not necessarily fixes, but design more inclusive practices. Mm-hmm. But I would challenge any therapist who thinks, oh, I'm stuck in this very structured system, I can't do anything, that I can guarantee that even within you know, the four walls of whatever structure you are working within, there is some wiggle room. There is some tiny little thing, even if it's uh, heading on a form, there is something that you can change about your practice that is going to help. And I yeah, think stop those... using the word compliance in your documentation. There's a start. Please, <laughs> or, not, or non-compliance. <laughs> non-compliance yeah. is a big one in mental health and it drives mm. me up the wall. Uh, But yeah, even yeah, that can create mindset shifts. Just those small changes in terminology. Yes, there's power in language. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Back to social constructionism. (laughs) (laughs) Can't get away from it. Love it. What else do we want to cover, people? I don't know what. What do you want to talk about? What else you want to talk about? Oh, man. Oh, that's one thing I was going to ask. So Uh when we're looking at, yes, we're trying to implement these changes and stuff, and we've already, I think Jacqueline talked about earlier about, uh, I guess, the sensationalism of um, uh, people sensationalizing disability. One thing I think from this podcast point of view is, yes, I've spoken to some people who do do this stuff really well. There's a couple episodes coming out soon with people who have private practices who do really amazing inclusive work. Uh, but, and now after this conversation, I am very conscious of it, is holding examples, like, is that just another form of sensationalizing it by using examples of this is how, like, I guess as a very generalized thing, this is how things should work as opposed to, the opposite thing of just doing it and building it and I guess leading by example. I guess it's kind of like a top-down, bottom-up view of how yeah. we should change things. Is there, am I doing the wrong thing? I do that, <laughs> no. I do that as seeking the perspectives of people with disabilities. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily bad <laughs> um it's not at all um because i think yeah, i'm sort of leaning that way as well yeah it's sometimes hard for people to conceptualize these issues and through providing examples of lived experiences that that'll really makes it real in a way and i think can really foster that critical reflection piece mm-hmm and and considering, I guess the the delivery. I know you you use the word 
should do um, versus saying like could, could do, right? Because when we say should, it's sort of wagging the finger like so-and-so is doing this and you should do it too. Um, but, you know, but, but, but providing the example, right? Because it's, it's hard to imagine something that your, your world doesn't provide you the imagination for. Um, so I, I am personally looking forward to, to these <laughs> podcasts um, um, to see, because I think, you know, having examples, you know, one gives you some insight to some, some various perspectives, but also sparks imagination. So, um, yeah. Yeah, because I think there's, quite, there's, I guess, two different types of episodes that I'm thinking of. Yes, one I've recorded with a few people who have a lived experience of a certain uh, illness, disability, et cetera, that I've put out. And I guess the main purpose for me in talking to those people was to, I like narrative exploration. So it was essentially me learning from their experience, either with the the disability, with the diagnosis, with the health system around uh, their experience, et cetera, to try and go, okay, well, and there's very common themes through all of them. Quite often it's just, please listen to us. That's one of the basic ones. Um, but then there's also uh, like OTs who are, in my opinion, again, as a white, privileged, able-bodied person, in my opinion, doing inclusive practice really, really well. So... I don't necessarily, I think the wagging of the finger I did just then, obviously, but I don't know if in those episodes I particularly did that. I more present them as, here's someone doing something awesome. Take what you want from it. But I wonder whether or not that's at all effective in having an impact on like the stuff that we've talked about today. Or if maybe that more hardline approach might be necessary. In which case, I think that more hardline change of thinking, I think you mentioned it at the, at the start, was would be more effective, I guess, being delivered to students. But I don't know whether this, I guess, my soft approach or a more hardline approach would be better mm-hmm. at, I guess, not necessarily speeding up the change, but just creating some change. Yeah. I don't know, but I, I guess you'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, it really is just a matter of how it's portrayed. Is the individual being given the opportunity to share their own narrative or are, is our messaging being cast upon them of like what, how we want them to be represented? So really just allowing for them to... Um, you know, share their own perspective rather than ours being the dominating force. Is there, so going back to what you were talking about before, Kalia, uh, about uh, the drawing some parallels between, say, race and disability on terms of becoming more inclusive, becoming uh, like equal rights, that kind of thing. Is there Mm -hmm. any... Not necessarily parallels, but is there any lessons from, say, African-American history that we might be able to, I don't know, take to learn how to 
support people with a disability uh gain more rights themselves like is there any lessons from that journey um so far obviously it's still going Hmm. but yeah Um, i know that's a really big question to put you on the spot with but yeah no i think um the the largest takeaway um really again it involves money you know um if you if you follow the history of the civil rights movement in this country, the, all, a lot of the momentum happened around disrupting the flow of money. Okay. When people stop using um, the bus system and, and other systems, and you know when it starts affecting wallets, then people people want to talk. Um, like my my uh, grandfather used to have a saying that money talks and bullshit walks. So <laughs> um, you when you start messing messing with pockets people want to listen. And I know it, it shouldn't take that, but honestly, I, I feel like that's, that's one of the, the largest takeaways from any type of social movement, um, t- tying it to money. So is it <laughs> going to be a matter of, uh, I guess, supporting the development of, I guess, a bigger economy within, well, at the moment, everyone's kind of segregated into disability workplaces that kind of thing not everyone mm-hmm. but it has it does happen a lot is it a matter of trying to i guess put people in a dis- with a disability in more uh economically advantageous positions like is that something that might help or is that something um, we should look I at th- i mean i think i think in, in in part um that is something that can help um historically you know going back to the civil rights movement you know i think in a history in our country one of the moments or or periods of time you saw black communities flourish the most is when they they had their own businesses their own banks um you know everything was sort of built around black liberation and black um upward mobility and um you know, I think the disability community is is um, a little bit different in that there's been a longer history of sort of segregating this group. So the the economic access to even be able to start their own businesses and things like that just hasn't hasn't been that at, hasn't been as great of an opportunity as it has been for um, for the black community. And again, I think that speaks to sort of that layer, that layer of, of ableism. Mm. Um, but there is, and I know this is probably going to sound controversial, but there, there, there is some, some benefit when you do segregate um, groups like that. Um, Cause it's when it's by you and for you, um, it, it creates a space where you can thrive. Um, but just with, with the disability community though, I mean, there, there's just already an economic barrier in place that is just going to make that sort of upward mobility um I won't say impossible but difficult uh, my mind is sort of going to um I can think about celebrities like um uh oh gosh name is leaving me Superman um Reeves, Christopher Reeves. uh Yes, thank you. Yes. <laughs> um or like Michael J. Fox and other folks who you know, experience disability, have the uh, capital to be able to really make significant strides for the community and sort of what what happened with that. (laughs) Mm. Um, I know people can't see me like sort of doing this thing with my hands. I'm like, 
you know, there's, there's real, there was real opportunity to sort of move things forward in a way that would uplift the community that just didn't happen. But that also speaks to sort of, sort of I think, might be an issue that's, that's unique to the United States is sort of looking to celebrities to sort of leverage their power to um, help create change uh, in meaningful ways for disadvantaged communities or marginalized communities. But I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling a little bit about this now. But but I say all that to say, like, money is going to be the biggest driver, I think, of, of any social movement and yeah, you know, figuring out creative ways that will provide the economic but also political leverage um, that the disability community needs is is going to require not just real allies of the community but accomplices for the community. So if you're if we are as people who have the political and social and economic means to make change and and provide platforms for that to happen. We need to do that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think uh, that reminds me, uh, it's something I learned from, a, weirdly, a Netflix documentary. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. I can't actually remember what it was called. It was by uh, Killer Mike, who was a rapper for um, Run the Jewels. And he mm-hmm. did a Netflix series of documentaries, but one of them was around what he called the black economy. And he said that in the, I think it was the 20s and 30s, essentially there was this economy where African-Americans would essentially support other African-American-owned and run businesses almost exclusively, as much as they could. And Mm -hmm. he had all these stats and stuff. I can't remember them off the top of my head, but essentially saying that uh, their communities were much more sustainable. And that goes to what you were saying before in that it is segregation, but he was even his message during that episode was this was something that actually worked for our communities compared to what's happening now. Where I think he was saying that there was only like, I think 1%, I can't remember the exact community he was in, but there was like 1% of businesses in that community now instead of 45% were owned and run by African American people. Um, so he was, his message was like, we've got to keep, you know, our money in our community kind of thing. And I, I think that's the challenge. And I think that's where people go, oh, this is going to be too hard is that they see, or they hear like me, watch that documentary. I'm like, oh, that's a really interesting thing. That's a really good idea kind of thing. But it goes against the inclusion and the, like, if we were to say, for example, set something up like that for people with a disability. We're going to set up this sort of uh, like a small economy where they, you know, they can run their own business, and we might provide extra support to get them set up. Like uh, I can't remember who said it earlier, but someone was saying that, um, you know, they haven't traditionally had the means or the ability to, you know, even get the capital, say, to start their own business. That kind of thing. It might just be around, you know, dealing with the banks. But in order for us to change that, are we having to? try and find some sort of medium place where uh, it still works for society as is, but also includes more people with a a disability in their uh, ability to get, say, for example, capital to to start a business? Or are we going to have this, in air quotes, sort of segregation kind of idea where we provide extra support specifically for that community, which then 
yes, will sort of, I guess, kickstart that movement, but kind of goes against the principles of inclusion and that kind of thing. And I think that's one of the big areas where me personally uh, am sort of confused, not confused, but a bit sort of lost with oh, how are we going to do this? It's, it seems so big. What are we going to do? Where do it's we really start? Important. <laughs> I mean, there is power in people with similar experiences and identities banding together is if it's of their choice. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think often um, something that's overlooked is disability culture exists um, and people with disabilities deserve that platform to be able to realize that identity and take pride in it as have other um, movements of diversity, right? Um, So I really, I think it's, it's really dependent on the way in which that's presented and who has the power and control in those situations and and who has, um, who's making those choices to, to band together in that way. I think that's a really important point about the, the disability culture. Uh, and I think that's something like, I haven't even really put a lot of thought into that and actually like recognizing that. Now you've said it out loud. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, like I, I even remember working with, uh, the same person I was talking about earlier who taught me sign language uh, and her explaining to me uh, the different, I guess, facets that there are within the deaf community. And mm-hmm. I was just like, wow, I never would have considered that. And, you know, it's not all happy, same as every other culture, but, you know, there's people who are born deaf have a very, like a, a negative opinion of people who become deaf. It's almost like two different factions within that community. And I was like, wow, this is a whole nother world. I didn't even know existed. But I wonder whether, again, and similar to that, uh, or what you were saying before is, does it come down to almost, I guess, stigma in that I, I feel like there's a lot of, or the, there's a, the people I've worked with anyway, um, who are often almost against uh, or don't want to sort of hang around with other people who might have a disability because of, you know, essentially a stigma, like a stigma from the general community. What are people going to think? I'm just, you know, with everyone else and we're all, you know, whatever they're doing in that particular group. But there's a stigma towards people with a disability and it's pretty similar to what we were talking about before in that people already have this idea in their head automatically say, oh, such and such is a paraplegic. They automatically have in their head as soon as I even say that. I don't even have to say a name, uh, what they like to do, anything at all. I say paraplegic and they have this image in their head of exactly what that person can and can't do, exactly what they look like, even real, I haven't even said if it's a male or female yet, but they will automatically have a picture of that person in their head, what they can, can't do, what they'll be able to do. If I ask them, even just based on that one word, what sort of job that person will be able to do, I guarantee you 99% of people will give me an answer. And it's one word. I haven't even mm-hmm. said complete or incomplete. Like there's so, it's like ridiculous how much information we as a society have have assigned to that one word. 
and I do wonder whether the celebrity thing is kind of working against us in that way, in that, say, if I said quadriplegic, people are often, and I've, I speak about this when I teach about stigma, again, social construction, often their only relationship with that concept is something they've seen on TV. So it might be Christopher Reeve. So if their only relationship with the concept of quadriplegia is Christopher Reeve, they're automatically probably going to picture him or someone very similar who, uh, from memory, he used to move his wheelchair with a tongue uh, switch, I think, from memory. Or no, it might have been a chin switch. But like they'll have that image of him. Or Parkinson's. If their only relationship with the concept of Parkinson's uh, is, you know, Marty McFly, then that's that's the image they're going to have. And they're going to go, oh, well, mm. well, you know, he's still a functioning businessman. He just shakes a little bit. They don't see the behind-the-scenes stuff. They don't see all that extra information that, you know, everyone else, like if they're, people are dealing with a family member who has those, have those things, uh, has to deal with. But that's the only information they've got. So I do wonder sometimes whether that whole celebrity factor, yes, it brings attention to it. Um, uh, like motor neuron disease, for example. A lot of people will have uh, a very narrow view of what that looks like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because of you know probably from the ice bucket challenge a lot of people think it's something to do with ice i don't know who knows <laughs> right but it's it's i do think that sometimes that celebrity factor yes it'll bring awareness but it's not necessarily it's kind of like getting half the story like yep okay yeah i've heard of that now don't know everything about it but we as humans naturally, if we don't know something, the brain tends to fill in the gaps. So it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I know this. I heard about that. I know all about this, even though you might know practically nothing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that creates a very narrow image of the disability hmm. experience. And, you know, people, even just the concept of disability, people identify with to different degrees and people embrace disability culture to different degrees. And I think it's important for us to recognize that just diversity in the range of how disability can be identified with and um, embodied, you know? And again, it's, very similar, like the whole concept of disability. Most people would automatically, like, I'm speculating now, but I, I feel like most people would probably automatically think of physical disability. Mm -hmm. And I am very conscious of that because I've spent my career working in mental health that I know that I, I've had uh, people that I've worked with in mental health who have applied for a disability pension through like our welfare system and gone, well, I don't have a disability. I've just got schizophrenia. Like they don't even, and I'm like, it does, just ignore the word. You just, you want to apply for the welfare. Like they don't even, even the people in within uh, that work, uh, that community don't relate to that concept because to even to them, disability is a physical thing. It's, you know, mm -hmm. I don't have a wheelchair, so I'm not mm -hmm. disabled. So, yeah, it's, maybe we take a social construction approach and it's a matter of exposing people to a broader range of disabilities and people with disabilities and that kind of thing. Maybe that's what we need to do as professionals. I don't know.
Yeah. yeah. I mean, disability is, is such a fluid and complex condition. It's, it's really hard to define. And I think um, some of those narrow images have come from a medical model of, of defining disability as impairment in certain functional areas. Um, and that I think has really impacted people who need access to services and can't access them because they don't, you know, they don't meet that criteria. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, So I'm still like mulling over That's for right. the, the Hollywood response to disability and and um there there is there is a paper by um OTs and I'm going to see how ensure I think. It's was written in 2009, maybe, and published in the Occupational Therapy Journal of Research, which speaks to um, the the representation of disability in media and the service and disservice that we um, do in sort of perpetuating stereotypes and highlighting, um, I guess, in our, our quest to sort of highlight stigma and talk about it and sort of really being critical about how the profession contributes to that or not. Um, so maybe, you know, for the United States, maybe, it, you know, part of the role of the American Occupational Therapy Association should be to challenge these studios to, one, hire actors with disabilities <laughs> so that there is um, representation of, of what, it, what, what it really means to... Yeah, be a person with a disability, um, but but also just again to highlight the story so that we change the narratives, um, so that you know society as you know more broadly um, gets this exposure and can can grapple with uh, the realities of, of living with a disability. I think I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. This show just came to mind because I watched it not long ago and I loved it. I don't know if you've seen it. So on the new Apple streaming service, Apple Plus, uh, there's mm-hmm. a show called C. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it. Okay. So <laughs> they got Jose- Jason Momoa in there for the eye candy and the big star factor. Okay, sweet. That's literally the only reason he's there. I'm, I'm sure of it. <laughs> Did a brilliant job, by the way. Anyway, the basic concept of this show is it's like in the future, post-apocalyptic, there was a virus, wiped everyone out. The remaining people that survived went blind. So the whole world is blind. And finally, there's two kids that are born. They've got the power of sight again, and it's like rebuilding society kind of thing. I watched that show. And this is about 10 episodes. So it's about 10, to 10 hours worth of content. I watched that whole show, loved it. Brilliant show. Got to the end and had all like the special features, you know, like you used to back in the day when you got a DVD, but you can get all that stuff on iTunes now. So I was watching the special features, had interviews with the cast and stuff like that. I was shocked. This is how ridiculous society is. I was genuinely shocked 
all of the actors were actually blind. And then I was like, why am I shocked about that? Who's going to be best at playing a blind person? A blind person. I mean, yes, obviously Jason Momoa, not blind, but didn't accept, had had uh, consultants who were sight impaired to teach him how to act or behave as a blind person and did quite well. Because again, I didn't notice any difference between how he was acting and everyone else on set, but everyone else on the set was actually uh, either partially sight lost or fully sight lost, which I thought was when I found that out after I'd gotten over my shock about why the hell did I think that was I'm like, that's brilliant. That's what should happen. Like if you have someone (laughs) in a show that, is not able-bodied or presenting some form of disability, get someone who has it. One, again, like we were talking about before, stimulates the economy within that community by giving people, you know, a job or uh, especially something like that that's really high-profile and public and visual. People are seeing. I learned more watching that show about... Uh, how people would adapt with a sight impairment than I did from any textbook. And it was like a made-up, you know, post-apocalyptic TV show. But how, you know, oh, yeah, of course, how would they write things so they have their own form of, like, written communication and that kind of thing? Like, it... It's really well done, and now I know it's because they actually got the people with a sight impairment to act in it, consult in it. You know, I don't know. I don't think the director was sight impaired, but they had so many people in and around the set, in and around the writers, in and around the actors, that mm-hmm. they had a huge impact on how it came out. And I think it came out amazing because I love it. It's possibly one of my favorite shows ever so if you do get a chance watch it because it's really <laughs> yeah. good all right and you get to see jason momoa and <laughs> and do your part for inclusion and watch that show yeah. yeah i mean if they're not portraying themselves then leave it to able-bodied people to portray them as self-pitying or angry or bitter or a drain on the system so i think that's right that plays a significant influence in how disability is viewed is just the way that it's seen in the media. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything else you want to cover or should we wrap up? What's it been? It's been almost two hours. Has it really? It's uh, hour oh. 50. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Time you flies when you're having fun. No, I'm not, actually. <laughs> I've been in a really yeah, okay. I've been in a really bad habit this week that actually worked out well for this podcast. Because okay. I've kind of been like working all day and then I'll like play Xbox or something for a couple of hours into the night and because I've been starting the day at like ten o'clock and then going to bed at like two in the morning. So this worked yeah, out wow. perfect. Because I'm like I'm going to be awake. Okay. I'm going to be fine. But normally I would be tired. Yes, but I'm okay. Oh, good. I'm. I don't, I don't know for your your sleep practice, you know. Oh, if, yeah, no, if it's, that's, it's definitely well, not but <laughs> yeah, <Definitely. laughs> but I'm at least uh, happy that you know 
It's most definitely you not able to, but uh, <laughs> it's working for me for at least a week. So I'll run with it at the moment because we're in a weird situation worldwide. So I'll do what I can. All right. Awesome. Well, this has been an absolute um, pleasure. I'm glad we were, we were able to connect um, and that, you know, Jacqueline was able to participate because I just felt like, you know, B3 was just an, an incredible um, example um, of doing like real in the community, inclusive kinds of work that um, I think the kind of research that I engage in um, really speaks to. So Fantastic. thank you for providing space for this conversation thank you for coming along and agreeing to have the conversation (laughs) i really enjoyed this thank you for including a student's perspective i know i have a lot to learn um we all have a lot to learn (laughs) you're probably further ahead than most clinicians so that is very true i wouldn't i wouldn't put the whole like oh i'm just a student thing too far ahead because i think you're you're doing all right (laughs) What do you want to shout out, Jacqueline? Please promote whatever you want. Okay. So I'm pretty active on my personal Instagram. It's Jacqueline Gerda underscore OT. I also um, run all of the social media platforms for B3 Coffee. And you can follow us on Instagram at B3 Coffee or Facebook B3 Coffee. And then I also started kind of a side passion project called neurodiversity underscore OT. And that's really intended to leverage a strengths-based understanding of autism within the profession. So those are my personal shout outs. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. And the academic diva. Yeah. So um, you are welcome to follow me on Instagram at the academic diva. Um, the platform is really to share who I, who I am just sort of as a person, like outside of academia. I do talk about academia quite a bit, but um, just also the things that I, fashion in there. yes. So I do, Hey, I call myself a professor fashionista, no khaki pants and polos for me. <laughs> as I sit here, um, in my, as I sit here in my polo. Yeah. No, nothing wrong with a polo. No, not, nothing wrong with a polo, but I just, it is, it is it's not, not classroom attire no. for me. The golf course, baby, classroom, no. Um, but uh, yeah, so to, yeah, if you're, if you're interested in talking about to, you know, want to discuss a wide range of things, we can do it there. Um, also on Twitter at Oc Science, like OCC Science Bay, um, and also run the Society for the Study of Occupation USA um, Twitter platform and moderate um, Oxide Chat, um, which the next series will actually be on sort of integrating occupational science with occupational therapy advocacy. So. Um, really looking forward to that and hope that you all will join us. When's that, and when's if that you kick are, off? Um, have to confirm a date with Barbara Cornblow, um, you know, who's big OT advocate and um, lawyer here in the United States, but has an international reputation. Um, and then for those of you who are interested in diversity, equity, and inclusion work specifically, um, you can check out the Coalition of Occupational Therapy Advocates for Diversity um, on Instagram and Twitter as well. Oh, who, I believe Dev, the episode that I've just put out, I think Dev's just joined. 
Yes. Uh, yeah. As a, was I'm very... not sure what position, but uh, I believe, yeah, Dev just joined. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's now, um, I'm sorry, they are now on our board. Make sure I use proper, um, the appropriate pronouns. Um, very, very, very excited to have them with us. That was, that was a secret I had to hold on for a very long time. <laughs> and I, I, I engage with them on Instagram quite a bit. I just wanted to be like, oh my God, you're in it, but I can't tell you yet. <laughs> um so so yeah uh phenomenal group of people doing very very important work so beautiful beautiful well thank you both so much it's been awesome i love these deep dives i love these kinds of conversations the whole reason i started this podcast was to have these kinds of conversations and as always this was a blast so thank you both so much yeah thank you and get some rest If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.